Hello, it's Tony. So quick note from me on this episode's guest. I'm delighted to be joined by Felicity Halstead. She is the founder of Good Work, an organisation that recognises social mobility isn't just about access to university. And her organisation seeks to help people who have not had a great experience within the traditional education environment. I'm really excited to have her on the podcast. So let's get on to the interview. Hi, Felicity. Welcome to University Challenged. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you on as my guest because um, this is the first time that we've had, or we, I say we, I, the podcast has had um, an organisation represented and I'm excited for this because it's new and it is definitely about not going to uni. So for the listeners today and the listeners to come, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Felicity Holstead. I am the founder of Good Work, which is a new nonprofit community interest company um, that was set up to run impact programs and deliver advisory services and also advocate for interesting, rewarding careers and supporting young people from less privileged backgrounds who maybe haven't had um, such a brilliant academic experience or haven't gone to university to access careers that are often not available to them. Um, And I entirely get your use of the word we, Tony, because I have a habit of saying that all the time and people are like, isn't it just you? And I'm like, most of the time, yes, it's just me. I guess, yeah. Well, it's a community, I think. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The royal we. The royal we. We're in a jubilee year. Maybe it's the year where we can all say we. Right. Firstly, what's an impact programme? So our impact programme is a flagship six month programme. It's for young people aged 18 to 25. Uh, There are no academic prerequisites. We um, will assess candidates only based on their kind of interest and motivation to take part in the programme. And what it does is it's focused on soft skills building, really intensive, supportive training, and placements with partner organisations. And it's a fully paid programme, so um, our interns will be paid at the London Living Wage um, and take part in, as I say, a lot of cohort learning, training, um, as well as working and building experience with partners as well. And so that's our kind of flagship programme, and that's the concept that was behind um, the setup of Good Work, really. And it's the thing I'm kind of really most excited about um, and at the moment, we are aiming to start our first programme before the end of 2022. Um, fingers crossed. There's so, so, so much in there. Firstly, paid internships. I like the sound yeah. of that. Paid internships in London? Yeah. Are you serious? I, I know. Um, we definitely have a no tolerance, zero tolerance policy to unpaid internships. So, yeah, absolutely paid um, is the only option for us. And how did the idea for Good Work come about? What inspired you to set this up? Yeah, so a few different things. Um, So I did go to university. Um, I think we'll probably touch on that um, as well. But um, while I was at university, I took some time out um, and ended up um, interning paid um, for the Social Mobility Foundation. Uh 
I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, and they're a brilliant charity that do lots and lots of work with young people um, from the age of 16 and increasingly with undergraduates and school leavers as well. Um, and that was where I kind of first had my eyes open to the whole world of social mobility charities and organisations that were working to make the world of work fairer and more inclusive. Um, and then when I left university, I went into a consulting job. Um, so very much kind of corporate world. And very quickly threw myself into um, working with some others as well um, to kind of set up and run um, an internal work experience program. We worked with a couple of charities through that. Um, and it was there really that I started to see this trend where we would get some brilliant young people through the door coming onto these programs that we were running. Um, they would do incredible things and be really competent, really creative. And then sometimes I would look as the person organizing uh, this program, I would look at, you know, the academic records that we might have been sent through. And often I would think this is so strange because my own preconceptions would have been if I'd seen these young people on paper, that they wouldn't have been capable of doing what they clearly could when we kind of got them through the door. I was also really frustrated because we didn't have any opportunities for those without a degree to come and work with us. Um, I really wanted to push that more. And I think, you know, to, to give credit where it's due, lots of organisations are doing a lot more around school leavers and apprenticeships at the moment. Um, but for me, it just felt like a real gap. And particularly, you know, even in a lot of apprenticeship programmes, your grades and, you know, what you achieved in school and your ability at the age of 14 or 15 or 16 to know what you wanted to do and make, you know, informed decisions was still something that was being kind of held against you 10 years later. And that felt wrong to me. And it also felt wrong because we would struggle to get brilliant talent through the door at early careers level too. You know, we would interview lots of candidates and not always find what we were looking for. So yeah, that was kind of where the whole idea came from, which is, you know, what can we do not just to deliver hopefully better outcomes for a lot of young people through our programmes, but also, and that's where the advisory and advocacy part of Good Work comes in, really start to push the needle on how industry sees young people um, with more diverse academic backgrounds um, and what they have to offer, because there's a real talent shortage out there too, and it's nonsensical to me um, in the way that we do. And it's really sort of interesting what you touch on there, because like you say, we've got Social Mobility Foundation, there are organisations that are committing to, I guess, kind of blind hiring practices or contextual recruitment. Um, and yet still, still there is this issue. And I'm intrigued by, there's so many things about this that I'm just like fascinated by. Um, I'm really interested in that where you say young people who did not necessarily perform academically well. Mm -hmm. Because, again, you see with many programmes, the barrier to entry still is you must have an eight or nine uh, in maths or English. So where where does that bit come? Why is that such a problem? You know, why does it still exist? Because our education system was set up and has always been set up to work for, you know, 
to, to work really in the favor of a very few people whose brains work in a very specific way, who are able to go to school in a specific environment, who have a specific home environment as well that enables them to study and to have the time and the space and the mental energy that they need. Um, and that's just not true for all young people. And I think as well, you know, it's funny to me because my own education experience was actually a fairly kind of, you know, competitive university focused experience. Um, and actually, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And it probably didn't do very good things for my mental health at that age. But there are also lots of young people who, frankly, at the age of 15, don't know what they want to do with the rest of their lives or even 15. And, you know, I'm well past that now and I'm still not entirely sure. So I don't think we should hold that them and I don't think we should blame young people for saying I don't see the point um, at that age or even you know just not having the opportunity to engage when they actually want to you know we shouldn't hold it against them forever so you know when you talk about the fact that this problem still exists it's because we do have these really outdated sense of, you know this really outdated sense of what's important um, when it comes to hiring and you know I could talk about this for a very long time but um, <laughs> Yeah, we still put a real focus on kind of knowledge-based learning over skills-based learning. And when it comes to careers, yeah. it really is a shift that we're starting to see, but it's a shift we want to see more of. And it's really fundamental to what we're doing with good work, which is helping employers to see that actually, you know, somebody's degree goes out of date pretty much the second they stop, you know, the second they graduate, unless they mm -hmm. continue to work in that field, which very few people do. And so actually focusing more on the core skills that you don't have to have a degree to have is, is going yeah. to be much more important and much more efficient in the future. And how do you, um, something that I was really fascinated by was it, something that I personally benefited from in the corporate space was the soft skills training because it, it filled gaps I didn't even know I had. Um, I really didn't. Um, but some of those skills were more valuable than any like you know I did a couple of MVQs like how, how do you identify the soft skills kind of that required yeah. and how do you how do you build a program around that yeah so I'm lucky in that I've had a bit of practice because that is um to a certain extent what I did um and what what we did in my last job um okay. I can't take all the credit for that program by any stretch of of the imagination but um for me, the number one skill is confidence. And I'm not sure if we even call that a skill, but I think actually to a certain extent it is really. Um, if we can build confidence in young people through our program, then we've done 90% of the work. But the way that we do that is helping them to see that, you know, the environments they're working in are environments that are safe spaces for them, where they are welcome, um, helping them to feel confident in doing the work that they do. So, you know, presenting networking yeah all of those basic core communication skills are so so critical um and as well as that you know critical thinking problem solving all of those sorts of things as well they are skills that you can and many people do build at university but i would argue that it's a really inefficient and expensive way to build those skills and to spend three or four years and however many tens of thousands of pounds doing it yeah. um, and I'm not here to say that university is not a good option and a valid option for those who choose it. Um, I'm not discouraging people at all, but I think it's really important 
that we're honest and that we really recognize and think about the pros and cons of all of the options that are out there. Um, Because I think for a lot of young people, it's just not even really a consideration. Um, And that's, that's okay. It doesn't mean that it has to close down all of those doors. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm completely with you on that. Um, And how do you get, um, well, uh, it's kind of, how do you get buy-in from the organizations that you are going to work with? So one of the things we're focusing on at the moment is working um, particularly with startups, but also with organizations that might not, from a kind of tech and innovation perspective, consider themselves startups, but are kind of small, growing organizations, um, kind of in the maybe sub 100 headcount kind of space, but maybe bigger. Um, And working with those types of organizations who are often led by you know fairly progressive innovative entrepreneurial people um who are keen to actually you know we're seeing lots of culture shifts in work um and yeah. keen to really promote and live the values um that they kind of purport to have which with a lot of bigger corporate organizations is a lot more difficult to achieve because you've got decades of legacy there that yeah hard I mean I, I spent a lot of time in kind of people consulting it can be very very hard to unpick yeah um, and so actually getting that buy-in is not necessarily always that difficult um you know obviously people have got to have the kind of budget and the resources to invest but at the same time if you're looking at taking on early careers talent and you want to do it in an inclusive progressive way then you know good work is a perfect kind of partner for you in that because ultimately we can do a lot of the work for you in terms of you know providing that resource and that best practice knowledge and all of the things that make it seem kind of too hard and too complicated to do internally particularly when you're a small or growing organization we can pretty much take all of that off your plate um, and help you to access candidates who otherwise are really unlikely um, to ever kind of walk through your doors whether they be hybrid working world doors or real doors or remote work whatever doors of an office exist these days yeah Um, and, and so actually getting that buy-in, I think once people kind of take the time to understand where we're coming from, I have in the kind of, you know, six months that I've been talking to people about this, very, very few people say, no, it's just not a good idea. In fact, nobody um, has actually said, yeah. you know, no, there's something fundamentally wrong with this. It's just a case of nudging that culture shift and getting organizations to to really make that leap and and to invest in their early careers talent um, in a kind of really authentic way. And and how will that kind of investment and funding model work? Yeah. So if you take the kind of core impact program um, as an example, um, what we will ask organizations to do is to pay the London living wage, um, the real living wage um, to their internal placement for the full six months of the program. Um, And then they will also pay a pretty well-priced wraparound fee to us um, as well um, on top of that which will basically allow us to take care of so we'll provide them three weeks of training as part of that all of the recruitment support um, as well as kind of full-time mentors who are available to young people on placement um, kind of throughout and available to help and facilitate the placement and we will support them as well in kind of scoping out and deciding you know what the best thing for their organization is whether it's to kind of put somebody in a team for the whole six months to move them around it's going to depend a little bit 
on kind of how their organization functions. So that's how that will work. And effectively, the idea is that that wraparound fee will pay for most of that training, some of our time, but actually by also doing some of the other bits of work we're doing, the advisory work in particular, we as an organization will be able to generate um, surplus that we can reinvest because we are not for profit. Um, So after our expenses, we can reinvest into building and expanding our impact programs. Um, And while I have referenced London Living Wage, that's where where I am right now. Um, It kind of makes sense for that reason more than any other, for that to be where we start. Um, Absolutely recognize um, that, you know, we should not be a London focused organization. Even in the short term, um, we would love to be expanding to other cities around the UK and to be able to really make the most of hybrid working and remote working to make sure that we're reaching the cold spots where lots of, you know, there are very few opportunities for young people to get involved in programs like this. So we are, you know, definitely looking at how we do that, um, you know, in the very kind of near future. Yeah. And um, you've got a board of directors or non-execs, yes. non-execs on board. And so I did my homework and yes. I noticed that everyone does have a university background. So yeah. how does that how does that fit with the overall aims and ambitions? And why is it important to you all? I mean, it makes sense. But I think morally and ethically it's the right thing to do. But yeah. I guess people would say, OK, so you're all university educated. Why do this? Yeah, and I think it's important to recognise, first off, that that is a privilege that we've all benefited from. I would not have had the career I've had so far without that. Um, But that being said, you know, from the experience I've had working in and around social mobility, what I have learned is that, you know, we often we have very few routes to success that we promote. um, And that's often for really good reasons, right? You know, one of the safest ways to, you know, achieve social mobility is to get a T1 from a Russell Group University (laughs) and go and work for one of the big four. Um, But that's actually not really the most exciting way to live your life. And it's also just not right for lots of people. Um, I would also argue it wasn't actually really right for me. I found university a really difficult experience, to be honest. Mm. Um, And in part, that was just because it didn't really give me the things that I needed and liked to do on a daily basis I found it hard to engage with and I think a lot of young people do and despite having had a you know a fairly strong experience academically ultimately I you know struggled to get through university and in the end do I think it really gave me that much it gave me you know a gold star on my CV that has opened doors for me Um, But I don't think that's how it should be. And I think, you know, the rest of our board would very much agree with that. And I think we recognise that it's definitely a gap in the board. It's something we need to address and we are planning to address, um, you know, in the near future, which is to make sure that we have some representation from those without degrees. But at the same time, um, I think it's also really interesting, actually, that a couple of people on our board have very specific degrees. So, for example, we have someone who is an, um, a psychologist yeah. who is designing and helping to design our assessment process. For, you know, how do we assess candidates yeah. in the best possible way to really understand their aptitude without looking at qualifications? And so I think that's a yeah. example of where a degree can be really useful for a person's yeah. um, job in the future. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, if if she were to work in a, you know, more corporate, slightly different environment, it, it may not be that she was actually able to use that degree in the same way. So yeah. that's why I guess it's important to all of us is that we share that kind of ethos. Um, but yeah, as I say, like we would love to get some kind of broader representation on our board sooner rather than later. And I love the idea, actually, of like you said, it, it kind of opened a door for you, but you're holding the door open you know, to let other people in? Yeah, I hope so. And sometimes that can feel a bit kind of grandiose, really, um, to, you know, make claims like that. We're we're simply trying to, I think, level the playing field. And also it is the great irony of all of these things, as with most aspects of DEI initiatives, that actually they make really good business sense. And often it is like banging your head against the brick wall trying to get business leaders to understand and come around to that but it is it is also true I've spent time interviewing graduates and felt like banging my head against the wall afterwards because they didn't have the skills and experience that we needed um despite having the degrees that we were looking for so actually you know by broadening that talent pool as well um, it's only going to do good things for all of us um but yeah and I'm thinking about that like you say um there's an element of how do you measure how do you create that assessment tool how do you so how how are you going to find your candidates where are they going to come from so for our initial program which will be based primarily in London it's going to depend a lot on our placement organizations who we're working with as to the kind of need for people to be able to kind of come in to London and how often um but for that, that at least gives us a geographic focus. Um, and we have really broad, fairly broad criteria. Um, so as well as looking at candidates who can demonstrate, um, for example, having been on free school meals, yeah. um, we will also partner with other organizations. So charities and nonprofits who have worked in the social mobility space, perhaps with younger candidates, um, because our program is for 18 plus year olds. And there are quite a lot of organizations that work with candidates up to the age of 18 um, and do really fantastic work in terms of opening, um, you know, work experience opportunities, et cetera, but, you know, helping with that transition. So partnering with other organizations too, who can kind of validate eligibility for the program um, we will also be open to working with those who have been refugees or asylum seekers or have experience yeah. with homelessness too um, but we'll also be looking at working with um, local authorities job centers um, so finding young people who are either unemployed or underemployed um, and who would benefit from a program like this so that's our kind of first port of call as well as making sure that it's a really open application process um and you know reaching out to as many you know because we're looking at the 18 to 25 age bracket you know while we will talk to kind of schools and sit from colleges for example um we also want to make sure that we're able to access people who are at the older end of that bracket too which is where things like job centers for example may come in yeah that's a re- and that's a really i mean the age thing is quite fascinating in many yeah. respects and like you say actually I know there is a requirement you have to be in education or training we have to be in some form of education up to the age of 18 but that can include yeah. apprenticeships that's right yeah. isn't it yeah um but if for any reason you haven't been or you've fallen through the gaps or it was yeah. a while ago then yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and at the moment, we're not looking to open the programs to those under 18. Um, yeah. But there may be variations on what we do in the future. Um, the program that we're running is unlikely to be considered a formal um, kind of type of educational training that would satisfy yeah. that requirement up to the age of 18 for a full time um, kind of a full time work or study. Um, but that said, um, you know, we will explore in the future if we think that there is, you know, some validity in expanding our age bracket in either direction. Um, but at the moment, you know, we're very focused on the kind of early careers area. That's where our expertise is. And so making sure that we're quite kind of focused on that age bracket, um, I think will be helpful um, in, in kind of keeping us um yeah stopping us from getting too distracted by trying to change the world all at once yeah and and when you said you know that there's a kind of a talent shortage yeah what what is it do you think that is most frustrating for the kind of organizations that you'll be working with what are the things they're looking for that they're just not finding I think you know, it's a really interesting one I think to a certain extent and perhaps less with some of the you know, more kind of agile startup style organizations that we may be working with in the short term um, and more for kind of bigger corporate organizations. Sometimes I think expectations are too high. We expect people to come in and be able to hit the ground running. I think there are kind of, you know, we, have, we almost have two brackets really of expecting people to know absolutely nothing and to be able to do absolutely nothing. Right. And expecting people to kind of hit the ground running and be able to do everything immediately and not yeah. need any supports. Um, I don't think either of those works. And I think that's why you get that frustration because often, you know, you'll certainly see some, some organizations hiring entry-level candidates who are actually nearly 30 um, and have had, you know, multiple masters and jobs, et cetera. And, and those are the people who are getting some of those high-paid grad schemes. Yeah. Um, and so actually you're kind of 21-year-old straight out of university, never had a shot. Um, or at the same time, um, you'll you'll get candidates in who get bored really quickly because yeah. They're treated like children from day one. They're not given real responsibility. And one of the kind of core um, principles of good work and what we're trying to do so is, is meaningful work. And yeah. that doesn't mean that, you know, everyone has to get up and bound out of bed every day because of, you know, they're absolutely purpose driven by what they do. That's not a realistic outcome for most people for every single day of their lives. But equally, you know, there has to be dignity in work. And for there to be dignity in work, that work has to have, you know, a point to it. Um, and often entry-level candidates will come in and not actually get given anything meaningful to do because the organisations who are looking after them don't have the time or the resources or even know what they're doing to be able to adequately train those young people. And so while you might get young people who are, you know, can write some really brilliant essays yeah. um, and do well academically, in terms of just practical skills, you know, general communication, um, you know, how to, you know, organize themselves and how to behave and all of those things. Yeah. Um, we are in the workplace. Um, it can be a really steep learning curve. And I think what we kind of often see is organizations just not really knowing where to begin and therefore leaving, you know, entry-level candidates to kind of flail and, and then often fail. You know, there are some big organizations who deliberately overhire in order, you know, on the basis 
that many of their candidates will fail and that's just part of the churn and I just think it's a very nice way to treat people um and it's not really setting people up for you know a positive start to their career so again that's some of the behavior really that we want to change yeah and it's it just you you kind of brought to mind I remember I've never thankfully ever had to go through one of these but I was told about one of the kind of graduate recruitment days which yeah. is like being on the apprentice it just sounds horrible <laughs> uh, and they they come out and just send half of you home at lunch yeah. and say yeah. yeah absolutely I mean I I did some of it um back when I was kind of you know coming out of university and desperately trying to find you know something to do with my life and didn't really know what what to do and so it felt like corporate grad schemes were a good idea and yeah it was it was it's it's the hunger games really and it yeah fairly horrible as an experience and not the hopefully the kind of candidate experience that we will be creating or encouraging for anyone we work with and and do, do all of these like strange behaviors like making people work in a team and then sending three home um do you think that does stem from organisations not knowing how to bring people in? Like you said, overhiring, and I think half of them will fail anyway because they they just don't know how to find the right people in the first place. Yeah, and I think some of it is also a culture thing, and you know, we're seeing organisations now start to really. So, so I have a theory. It's not a unique theory to me at all that you know work is is ultimately a transaction and you know I always get really stressed I think for me one of the biggest red flags in life is when somebody says you know we're a family here about an organization it makes me want to run very very fast in the other <laughs> immediately yeah. um you know because work is a transaction and if you are made to think that you know they are going to be loyal to you if you're loyal to them then you are being fooled um that that is my view um however and and as a result as organizations are dealing with the fact that their employees and their potential candidates are starting to kind of wise up to this a bit more you know in the news you know just a few days ago was um you know what what was it the airbnb's website had had eight hundred thousand people looking at it at, at its careers pages after they announced um that they were going remote permanently um, and that no one was ever going to have to come back to the office. And, you know, you're seeing really brilliant organisations doing lots to promote kind of flexible working policies and really something to hold employers to account for, you know, actually providing a positive experience um, for their for their people. And a lot of that I think, has been brought, brought on by the shifts of the pandemic. Um, and as a result, I think some of these bad practices and bad behaviours are just legacy from a time in which, you know, the the power was in the other, you know, the the power was kind of on the other foot, really. Not sure that's a very good. Are you mixing in metaphors? Maybe. Mixing metaphors. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, the power sat sat in a different place. Yeah. And actually, as we see, you know, people start to kind of wise up to that. You know, we do need to see organisations respond, and yeah. as a result, you know, and I, I think I felt it when I was first going to work. I just wanted a job and I would have done anything within, you know, reason to, and I would have, you know, you go in, I was mentoring somebody last year through a kind of mentoring scheme who said to me, you know, I don't care if I have to work 80 hour weeks for my first, you know, five years. And I just said, are you, have you really? Like, yeah, was, you'll die if you do that. Like you will burn yeah. out 
and die. And that is a really unhealthy, terrible approach. And, you know, we kind of talked that through. And I said, you know, actually, what is really helpful now is that people are saying, you know, this isn't right. We don't have to, you know, hustle culture is not actually the be all and end all. And I think it is absolutely possible to have a successful career without burning yourself out in the process. And I think as a result, organisations are having to adapt their ways of working and perhaps treat employees and potential employees hopefully a bit better in re- as a result and, and not um, subject them to kind of strange mind games as part of their assessment processes, um, yeah. I hope at least. Yeah, it's just that there's so much like you, you sort of conjured up for me there and, and for a podcast I listened to and one he talks about and I've worked you know at a huge corporate yeah. and he was saying you know why they put in pool tables and bean bags that it's like it's to keep you there and treat you like a child it's yeah. like you know look you're in this amazing play zone and so you will stay here for 12 hours a day mm-hmm. but they can't do that anymore because like you said, people were are saying actually I'm not coming you can't make me come back five days yeah. because it doesn't I can still work from here um yeah how um so I think a couple more questions um how do you think something I hear a lot about is like with the soft skills for yeah. example if people are working in a hybrid environment mm-hmm. and so had and an early careers so they haven't necessarily had they may not have even had in-person like teaching but for, for you know two years of their education yeah. How will your program kind of help people to be able to mix it up with that face-to-face and online? Yeah, I think I think it is important as well that we give young people a realistic view of what work will be like when they get there. And I've had to definitely temper some of my ambitions for, you know, let's have the most flexible, incredible environment ever, because I actually don't want to give the people who come on our program the most you know an an unrealistic view of what the rest of the world will be like because unfortunately we're probably not going to be able to just hire them all and keep them all forever um, as much as I would love to Um, and in answer to that as well having a real focus on the hybrid I think is really important so our first probably as as I said kind of two weeks of our program plus a week in the middle will be kind of full-time training and part of the benefit of that is doing that in person all together and actually because we're working with young people who are interning with lots of different small organizations bringing them together to create a cohort build some of those connections and bonds as well um because it's really important particularly if you're looking at young people who haven't been to university that they have the ability to make friends and social connections as well as part of this kind of you know hopefully new phase of their life um so i think it's really important that we you know foster that too Mm, Um, and so that training I think it is really important that we do that in person and it will be you know we will be encouraging the organizations that we work with to you know get and and put a focus on their placement um intern coming into the office a couple of times a week and we will also have our own office and have allow our interns to come there too if they feel like they need some more of that connection and focus too because actually if you're working remotely but perhaps you either don't have somewhere good to work at home 
um, or yeah. you know the organization you're working for only has people in the office a day or two a week and you prefer being in an office environment we'll try and replicate and provide some of that too because I do agree and I think it's a massive issue for a lot of young people just starting out in their careers and, and it's hard to kind of know what you don't know in the, yeah. what you've missed and I, and I totally get it um you know I was lucky I had all of my kind of early careers training in person kind of pre-pandemic um and you know you gain so so much from that both socially and professionally um and I think it's important that we try and replicate that where possible whilst giving people the best of both worlds in terms of that flexibility on an ongoing basis you know the average week as part of the program shouldn't mean that you have to be in an office more than maybe two days if you don't want to be um, but making sure that there are lots of opportunities to be together and come together in person as well um, in a way that works for everybody. Great. So the question is, the follow-up question, <laughs> how can people um, get involved? So what yeah. are the different, because you've got what, three different strands, it'd be great to know what are the different ways you get involved? Absolutely. So um, first of all, if you know, if you're a young person who is interested in actually applying for one of the programmes, um, I don't yet have a date as to when applications will open, but I'm optimistic it will be this summer. And um, the best thing to do is to sign up, um, follow uh, Good Work on socials or sign up to our mailing list. So our website is goodwork.org.uk. Um, and you can sign up to our mailing list there and then you'll be kind of kept up to date with um, kind of news about application processes opening or anything like that. Um, and you can also email us hello at goodwork.org.uk if you have any questions on that. Um, if you are an organisation and you want to get involved either with um, placing a young person on our impact programmes or supporting a young person through that, or you're at the point where you think actually you know, we want to be taking kind of five plus um, early careers candidates a year. Um, and we love all the principles of what you're doing, but actually we almost need our own internal program or strategy. Um, or perhaps you already have one and you could do with some audit on, on, on that. Um, then that's really where our advisory um, comes in. So I think for either of those options, um, the best thing to do is, is to just get in touch with me directly. Um, so again, via our website, you can do that. You can contact us um, and just ask the question, really. And even if you think, well, this all sounds amazing, but I'm not totally sure how it could work for our business. Um, that's a conversation I'm always willing to have. You know, we're in the very early stages here and we're kind of learning as we go. So having those conversations and exploring what's possible um, is really important. And then the final thing really is about advocacy. And that is something that we expect to grow over time. But, you know, there is no point doing what we're doing if we don't take the lessons from it and help hopefully to, you know, trigger changes kind of across industry. You know, we're not trying to kind of protect our ideas here. We're very much saying, you know, this is our approach to early careers and we hope lots of other people will adopt it too. And our advocacy um, approach is going to be a key part of that. So talking about what we've learned and, you know, helping other organisations and other people to kind of advocate for better approaches and more inclusive approaches to early careers elsewhere. So for that, really, it's kind of about keeping an eye again, probably on our social media. Um, we have 
hopefully some exciting things coming up later in the summer in terms of events um, and you know speaker series and things like that um, but yeah I would say keep an eye on our social media for that um, and that is good work UK on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn so, yeah. <laughs> that's great and I will put a link to all of those things oh, thank you um, <laughs> in the show notes I'm just uh, grateful that you um, offered me some of your time, Felicity. I'm excited for what good work is setting out to do. And, um, well, no doubt we'll have you back on in a year's time to, to hear some of your success stories. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.